Good evening, North Heights Church family. Thankful to see you tonight. We're glad you have uh, glad to have such a good attendance with us uh, on this Lord's Day evening. Uh, it's been a pleasant day, beautiful weather, and uh, a great uh, day of worship. I was not wish it w- with you this morning. Uh, I know Sean did a great job preaching. I'll watch it um, after I get home tonight. In fact, I haven't been home at all all day. Uh, me and the two older boys went up to Lepanto for a gospel meeting. I spoke three times there today, and we had a meal together, and then I drove straight back here to get ready for this evening. So I may be a little out of breath, I may be a little disjointed or discombobulated, or maybe a little spastic, but that's pretty much par for the course, so that's no problem there. Um, but I am very excited to preach to you. It's, it's um, my favorite thing to do in the world is to preach the gospel, to stand on the stage and deliver a message from God's Word, something about God, something about God's people that can be encouraging to them, maybe enlightening to them or informative uh, or what have you. In this case, I think the sermon tonight will be informative, or at least I hope it will be, uh, and enlightening. I don't really have a formal kind of introduction like I usually do, the way I like to ease you into the subject matter. I just want to dive right into it without really even telling you what we're talking about, okay? We're just going to jump right into the text. I have six things that we're going to talk about. They're um, not evenly distributed, so some will be longer than others, so don't panic if one point takes like 20 minutes and you think, oh man, we're going to be here for three hours. It's not like that. Um, but six things we're going to talk about. Power, or excuse me, purpose, power, and prediction. And then we're going to talk about reformation, restoration, and response. Six things. Let's break it down for you. Let's start with purpose. For example, God had a plan. God had a purpose in mind for humanity. From the beginning, or even you could say from before the beginning began, God had a purpose. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Ephesians 3, 9-11. through 11. Listen to that phrase. Look at what it says. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. I want to show people, Paul says, the idea that all of us can be united, all of us can be one, not divided, but unified under the banner of Christianity, the fellowship of the mystery. It's called a mystery because it was talked about throughout the Old Testament and not understood. It was this curious thing that the prophets would write about that no one got because the Jews could never fathom the idea that they could have fellowship with Gentiles, but they can and they should through Jesus Christ who created all things, the world, uh, were created by Jesus Christ for this purpose, to the intent that now, under the auspices of all kinds of world governments and leaders that try to divide us, we can be united. We can have fellowship in Jesus Christ. We can take part in the manifold wisdom of God, literally the full spectrum of the wisdom of God. That word manifold means full spectrum. Like you have light and you break the light and it shines off the beams of light in different colors. So you can see the whole spectrum of light. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple, indigo, whatever they are. You can see the full spectrum of light when you break the light. Well, if you take the plan of God and you could see all of it come to fruition, all the whole rainbow of God's wisdom is seen and found in what prism? If you trace back the beams of light back to its original source, what is it? It is the eternal purpose of Jesus Christ. What is it? The idea of unity in Jesus Christ. God's plan from before the beginning began was to make humanity 
and have all of humanity. He didn't intend it to be Adam and Eve, but all of humanity to be in fellowship together with him through Jesus Christ. That is the purpose. Now let's talk about power. Let's start with Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. By the time of Isaiah, you're 700 B.C., you're thousands of years after the creation of the world and the formation of man and all of the kingdoms that come with that and all the division and the war and the hatred and the worship of other gods, everything that the world has fallen into by the time of Isaiah, and it ain't getting any better in the 2,700 years since then, but by the time of Isaiah, the world is far from at fellowship with one another. But the prophet predicts a day will come that fellowship will start to happen. And it will come with power. It shall come to pass in the last days, Isaiah says, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people will go and say, let us come up and go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." It is from Jerusalem that this fellowship will come and start. It is from Jerusalem that this power will be sent. God tells Isaiah to declare to the world that in Jerusalem, one day in his near future, would come this great power that all people will have access to, that all will draw themselves up to. It will not just be Jews going up the hill to worship on a temple site. It will be Jew and Gentile and all nations flowing upward instead of Things flowing out from a mountain, they'll be flowing up the mountain to this site of God's power being presented. What, what is this power? What is it? I know it's tethered to the idea of fellowship and unity and all togetherness, but what is it? It starts in Jerusalem. Let me give another prophecy of power. This one has to do with, or the prophecy has to do with Nebuchadnezzar. In the kingdom of Babylon, a little bit ahead of Isaiah's time, in the kingdom of Babylon, the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, has dreams he can't shake. And I don't have time, because it would take way too long, to read to you all of Daniel 2. I encourage you to read it on your own sweet time. But just to break it down simply like this, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream he can't shake. He invites his um, counselors, his wise men, his soothsayers, his pagan you know, um, uh, scholars to, to try to interpret the dream for him, and none of them can do it. He's at his wit's end. And he discovers that he has a, a, a Judean boy in his prison named Daniel who has the ability to interpret dreams through the power of his God, Jehovah. So he brings Daniel in and Daniel does exactly what his soothsayers could not. He can interpret his dream. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar about what he dreamed. And he says to him, you dreamed of a tremendous statue that had different elements to its particular parts. It had a golden head. It had chest and arms of silver. It had a waist of bronze. It had legs of iron. It had feet of iron that were mingled with clay. And Nebuchadnezzar, you represent, you and your mighty empire of Babylon represents the golden head of this statue. But after you will come forth another kingdom. And it will be lesser than yours, but it will still consume yours. It will be greater than anything the world had seen, or it will be greater than anything the world has to offer at the time. So what is, if Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head of Babylon, then what is the empire, the kingdom that comes after Babylon? According to world history, it's Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire. And after him would come another kingdom. Well, what's the big, huge empire that came after the Medo-Persians? But Alexander and the Macedonian Empire, they're the brass waist. 
and what came after them. Here's where it gets kind of fuzzy depending on who you talk to. But we can all agree, at least anyone who can look at the Scripture and understand what it said can all agree that we're going to end with the time of the Caesars and the time of the coming of Christ. But before that, you've got legs of iron and feet of iron mingled with clay. I think that if you're looking at what is the big empire that came after um, Macedonia, well, what comes next is the Roman Empire. But Rome didn't start out as an empire. It started out as a republic. And it went from a republic to an empire. And all historians agree, and there's been a lot of study and, and history done on the Roman Empire, the moment they went from a, a republic to an empire, while they grew massively outwardly, inwardly they started to rot from that moment forward and decay and be corrupted. And when they collapsed, they collapsed from the inside out. Almost kind of like feet of iron mingled with clay that's soft, brittle, and easily broken. An empire that crumbles from within. So I, I tend to think that's the lineage that uh, Daniel is painting here. From Babylon to Medo-Persia to Macedonia to Rome to a Roman Empire. And then he says, and in the days of those kings will God set forth his kingdom that will never be destroyed. What happened to Babylon? Destroyed by Medo-Persia. What happened to Medo-Persia? Destroyed by Macedonia. What happened to Macedonia? Destroyed by Rome. Whether it's the Republic or the Empire, destroyed by Rome. But in the days of those kings, the Roman Empire, will God set up his kingdom that will never be destroyed. What is the kingdom of God? It is the mountain of the Lord's house. It is the powerful institution that Isaiah talked about in chapter 2. That's coming in Jerusalem. It's coming in the days of the Roman Empire. Because, Daniel says, something else you dreamed in your dream was not just a statue, but behind that statue was a mountain. A mountain of God that had a rock cut without hands, though not of human construction, but of divine origin, that rolls down the mountainside and crashes into the statue and leaves it as nothing but dust and debris. And from the ashes of that rises a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The kingdom of the Messiah. Connecting the dots between Isaiah 2 and Daniel 2. You have a power that is coming in Jerusalem, the mountain of the Lord's house. You have that mountain that's coming in the days of the Roman Empire. i got another chapter 2 for you. This one from Joel 2, verses 28-32. through 32. It shall come to pass afterward, God says that I will pour out my spirit. When Peter quotes this text in Acts 2, he translates it like this, I will pour out of my spirit. I will pour out from my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams. Your uh, old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And upon your servants and your handmaids will I pour out of my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. And the sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon shall be turned to blood before the great and the King James says terrible, but the word means notable, noteworthy, big day, the day we've been waiting on, planning for, predicting, prophesying this big power coming day. That big notable day the Lord will come. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord in that day will be delivered or saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem will go forth deliverance as the Lord has said in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Joel connects the dots all the way back to Isaiah whose dots are connected to Daniel. You have in Isaiah this picture of this great house of God established on the mountain of the Lord. 
You have in Daniel telling you that that mountain is coming in the days of the Roman Empire. You have Joel that is telling you that that mountain in the days of the Roman Empire is going to have the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon it so that people are working miracles and that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is identifying a day and time when all of these powerful prophecies will come to their fulfillment. I have one more chapter 2 to give you. But before I give you that one, I have a little interlude. We need to set the stage for this last chapter 2. It's found in Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. And Jesus said to them, he's talking to his apostles, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now wait just a second. Jesus says to his disciples, here's your message. Go and deliver the message of salvation repentance and remission of sins go deliver the message of freedom the message of redemption the message of deliverance that which joel said would come in the day of the lord jesus says the day of the lord is very 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 near at hand and you're going to proclaim it go preach repentance and remission of sins in my name and go preach it beginning in jerusalem and behold i send the promise of my father unto you what is this promise the power of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in the next chapter. I send the promise of my Father unto you, and tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endured with power from on high. Here is Luke telling you that everything that Isaiah, Daniel, and Joel predicted is about to come to pass. Among all nations, the gospel will be preached beginning at Jerusalem. We will tell all nations to come up to Mount Zion, to the house of the God of Jacob. We will come up to Jerusalem where the power is found, where the kingdom will be established. I send the promise of my Father unto you, I promise of power. Everything that we've been building to is about to happen. It's the 11th hour. Let's get to the 12th hour. Acts chapter 2, the last chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, the apostles, were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a shout as of a mighty rushing wind and filled all the house where they were sitting. And it sat upon each of them cloven tongues like as a fire. Um, uh, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here are the apostles gathered in Jerusalem in this place where this great sound comes. It sounds like a rushing mighty wind and it fills the whole area where they're sitting. And then what falls on them is a visual representation of the Spirit giving them the power to do as we'll see through the rest of Acts chapter 2, which is to speak in other languages as the Spirit gives them utterance. He, his Spirit gives them the words and they speak it in the language that He wants them to speak. For what reason? They all speak the same language. Why, why do they need to speak other languages now? Because if you see from the rest of Acts chapter 2, there's a whole crowd of Jews that are going to gather around. Jews who came from all over the known world who speak all kinds of different languages. And they're going to hear the apostles preach to them in their native tongues. And they're immediately going to recognize this is a miracle. Because people who can't, they can't, these ignorant fishermen don't, can't, uh, can't know our language as fluently as we know it. This is a miracle sign from God. And Peter, taking advantage of their attention, speaks and preaches to them the message of repentance and remission of sins. In fact, that's exactly what he tells them to do, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And those who do that and are baptized, the same day are added unto them 3,000 souls. And the Lord adds to that 
body of saved people, that group of delivered people, that house of redeemed people, the King James calls it, the Lord adds to the church. As people are being saved, people are being added. Let's back up for just a second. We started with purpose. God had a plan, a desire for all people to be united under the manifold wisdom of God. They were all to be united in fellowship through Jesus Christ. He predicted that despite how fractured and war-weary the world would become, he predicted through Isaiah and Daniel and Joel and through Jesus himself that in Jerusalem, in the days of the Roman Empire, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be poured out and that would signify the coming of the kingdom of God. And in this one kingdom of God, all nations could flow into it and all become part of the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. Purpose. Power. And in that one kingdom, more predictions are made. That all that God had established would start to become unraveled by sin once more. Look at the first prediction. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means. For the day, that is to say, of the second coming of Christ, will not come until there come a falling away first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The, the child of falling away. The poster child of, of rebellion. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Or that is worshipped as though he is God and sits in the temple of God, showing himself as God. Paul says Jesus is going to come back, but before he comes back, this unity that we have in Christ, this fellowship that we have together between Jew and Gentile and all people all bound together under Jesus Christ, under the banner of Christianity, it's going to become fractured. It's going to become a falling away of God's people. And it's going to be not necessarily ushered in by, but the poster child for it will be this figure that he calls a man of sin, a son of perdition, who will exalt himself as though he's God on earth, and he'll be placed in a temple, and he'll be venerated, and he'll be deified, and he'll be looked at as though he's the divine lawmaker. Whatever he says we will do, we'll put him in a big fancy chair. We may put a big fancy hat on him so we can identify him as special. Paul says this falling away will come. Here's the next prediction. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaks expressly. The Spirit told me this plainly, and I'm telling it to you just as plainly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith of falling away. And they will in so doing give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, not doctrines of God. Speaking lies and hypocrisies and having their conscience seared with a hot iron, they'll forbid people to marry. They'll command people to abstain from meats, things which God has commanded to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So Paul identifies not just the, the poster child of this falling away, but some of the things that will be commanded of people that God did not command, prohibited of people that God did not prohibit. Some people will be forbidden from marrying, denied access to marriage, or disallow the opportunity to eat certain foods. Oh, you can't have this food on this day, or you're not allowed to marry because you hold this particular kind of religious office. All these things which are not found in the New Testament, which are not part of Christianity, but are part of this bastardization of God's people, this warped uh, false mentality, this false idea of what Christianity is. And it's all based around not the Word of God, but by the decrees of this guy in a chair, in a hat, on a throne, that we have said is basically God on earth. That's the falling away. That's the prediction. Listen, there, 
there once was a New Testament way. There once was a way things were done. And just to give you one example of that, just one illustration, congregations in the New Testament time were organized autonomously. Even though they had fellowship one with another, even though they all believed the same things, or at least were supposed to, and they all uh, followed the same doctrine, and they were all brother and sister in Christ in unity and in fellowship through Jesus Christ, those gatherings of Christians had autonomy. If they wanted to gather together on the Lord's Day in the middle of the day, they did. If over here they wanted to gather together at the beginning of the day, at the sunrise, they would. If they wanted to gather at the end of the Lord's Day, at the sunset, they would. And they could not say, you can't meet at sunrise, you have to meet at sunset. And they couldn't say, you can't meet at midday, you must meet at sunrise. They wouldn't do that because they're autonomous. And they each had their own leadership over them. Guiding them and shepherding them according to their individual needs as a congregation. All under the auspices of the New Testament pattern. So that they were all still believing the same spiritual doctrine. But the cultural differences and the minor things, what colors the carpet should be, and so forth. Matters held and handled by their eldership. An eldership over here a bishopric, a presbytery, whatever you want to call them in the New Testament, they, they might be um, more merciful. They, they, over here, they may be a bit more stern. Over here, they may be a bit more, it's hard to get a read on them. You know, are they going to be patient with this uh, struggling Christian? Or are they going to show mercy? They're going to have a different personality. They're going to have different attitudes, but they're all going to follow the same doctrine. They're going to look like Christians look. Christians are all supposed to be the same, under the same banner of Jesus Christ, but we all have different personalities. Elderships, congregations were supposed to be that way, to the point where you could go to each individual one, notice the differences, but still feel like we're all part of the same family. That's how it used to be. That's the New Testament pattern. But over time, we fell away from that pattern, as Paul predicted we would. Things changed, to the point where instead of having... a different leaderships over different congregations qualified by the new testament commandment it eventually became one leader ruling over multiple congregations all of which holding his personality instead of it being this leadership rules over this congregation through the new testament pattern it became this one leader rules over multiple congregations he is the superintendent over a plurality of churches and this idea spread throughout the second century to the point where, as you get to just a couple of hundred years later, by the mid-fourth century, there are only a handful of major principal church identities. And a handful, just three in fact, primary bishops who oversee basically the whole Christian world. One in Rome, one in Antioch, and one in Alexandria in Egypt. One over here in uh, the, the modern world of Rome. One over here in the... Uh, uh, Palestinian or, or Judean world of the origins of the church and one in this new frontier of, of Christianity being spread in Egypt. Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. These three basically ruled over the church of the world. Does that sound like the New Testament pattern? It's not. This is not what God intended. God did not want men to rule over his church. He wanted the New Testament to be the, the pattern. He, wanted, he established Jesus to be the king over the kingdom. But now we've got three unruly princes who have power that they should not have. Does anybody think it's going to stop at three? 
I mean, you have a congregation here, 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 and here, and they slowly form a pyramid with one guy on top. And you have congregations here, 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 and they form a, period, a pyramid, and here they form a pyramid. Listen, pyramids, it's, the three are going to become one, right? Understandably so. It's necessarily going to reach an apex where there's one guy at the top of one big pyramid. And sure enough, by the 7th century, Boniface, 606 A.D., Boniface, the bishop of Rome, declares himself the universal bishop over all churches. You know, it's funny. You go back to about 350 A.D. I think, I think it's like 350, 325, 350, I think. You have um, Victor of Rome, the bishop. Back when there were multiple bishops, Victor of Rome, I guess, kind of saw where this whole thing was headed. And Victor said, you know, everyone's already looking to Rome for their worldly law I think they should all just look to Rome for their spiritual law too. So I'll just declare myself, Victor said, the bishop over all the churches. And all the churches said, no, we're going to keep doing it our way. Nobody really listened to Victor, but Victor was ahead of the curve. Victor understood where this was headed, but nobody was ready for that yet. But give it a few centuries, and the world was ready to fall away that far to where Boniface steps up and said, I'll be the leader of the whole Christian world. And everyone just kind of said, all right. And we let it happen. The predictions of Paul that we would exalt this one figure as though he was God on earth came to pass. And as the centuries progressed, this universal bishop started to be called Papa by his adherents, by those who followed his teaching. And sure enough, he started dressing in funny robes and wore a big funny hat. And he started making decrees and forcing people to abstain from eating food on certain days and forcing other people to abstain from being married. And started saying and doing things that were not allowed in Scripture, but he allowed them because he's sitting in the chair and he's making the decrees. What is the name for universal in the Latin which he insisted on speaking, these rulers, these universal papas? Universal in Latin is Catholicos. Here is the Catholicos papa. Thus, the origins of the Roman Catholic Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church did not start. There is no specific exact origin point where before there was none and now there is. It was a slow devolving into. It was a slow mutation into. It was a slow transformation, or as Paul puts it, a slow falling away until that which was New Testament becomes unrecognizable. And it becomes a Roman Catholic institution and not a Jesus Christ one. And so from that, we turn to the last three, the R's, starting with Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church, at the height of its power, controls the world, controls the governments of the world, because those kings and queens and rulers who rule over the governments of the world, they're Catholic. They bow the knee to the Pope, and the Pope rules the world. But slowly, over time, its influence starts to wane. In the Renaissance, a period of enlightenment and awakening and um, a revival of independent thought, you have people start to speak out against the Roman Catholic Church. You have people who start to rebel against the empire of religion that they had established separate and apart from the Word of God. And these various offshoots of the Catholic Church all spring up, all with the same intent, whether direct or indirect, the intent is to reform, to fix what is wrong with, to take the, the template of it, copy it, and smooth the rough edges of it. Thus Lutheranism and Methodism and Baptist uh, do uh, doctrine and Presbyterianism and Anglicanism, 
all founded by various men, John Smith or John Wesley or Henry VIII, all these people who came along with one reason or another to have a beef with the Roman Catholic Church or their adherents, their followers who had a beef with it, decided to form these new churches as a result. But all they're doing is creating offshoots of a falling away. They're creating mutations of a mutation, cancers upon cancers, bastard children of a bastard son. This is not what God wants. All you're doing is fracturing more. God wants unity. God does not want choose the church of your choice. That is not what God says. God says all should be united under my banner. Not united under Rome's or Luther's or Wesley's or Smith's. No. You don't pick your poison. If you do, you drink and you die. Pick, pick Jesus. So the Reformation, it doesn't work. You're putting lipstick on a pig. You're not making it better. You're just pritting it up for your own sake. What we need is not a Reformation of an inherently broken Catholic institution. What we need is a restoration, soul by soul, back to the standard of the New Testament. And that restoration from our American vantage point has its very interesting roots in the post uh, American Revolution era. But I want to just back up before I give you that and then we close. There was once a Bible way. We can all agree. God wrote the book. Men follow the book. Then what happened is men went away from the book and started following a different kind of way. They started following the Catholic way. And that Catholic way broke away from the Bible way. It shares similarities. It shares commonalities. But it is not the way. It's its own way. But Jesus says that he is the only way. So that way is wrong. And from that branched off a denominational way, which again shares similarities and shares roots and shares commonalities, but is not the way. It is an offshoot of the Catholic way, which is not the way. And even today, there's another offshoot of that. You have the community church way, almost all of which are themselves founded by Baptists or Presbyterians or, or Pentecostals, all with the idea of promoting their own denominational doctrines without having the baggage of the name Baptist or Pentecostal. But it's still just an offshoot of an offshoot of an offshoot of the way. At some point along the way, people started to say, we need to go back to this book. We need to do away with all the other ways and just go back to the way. And that's where you get men like James O'Kelly, who was a a Methodist preacher from Virginia who started to notice that his Methodist congregants would call themselves Methodist and not Christian when asked about their religion. And he says, you know, people, the Bible doesn't talk about Methodists. It talks about Christians. So we should just call ourselves Christian. The name Christian is good enough. Around the same time, that was in the late 1700s, like 1797 is when he first started writing that idea. Around the same time in New England was a Baptist preacher named Abner Jones. He started noticing that his congregants started uh, preaching and promoting and quoting Baptist doctrine more than they did the simple New Testament words. So he started saying to his members, without ever meeting uh, James O'Kelly, by the way, they didn't have email, they weren't chatting with each other, they didn't know each other. So he starts coming to the same epiphany and he starts telling his people, you know guys, the, the, the Bible only is good enough. And if the Baptist doctrine has something that's less than the Bible, 
it's insufficient to the Bible. If it has something more than the Bible, it's extemporaneous to the Bible. We don't need it because the Bible is sufficient. If it's the same as the Bible, then it should be the Bible. And it should not be different from the Bible. Therefore, all we need is the Bible. Let's go back to the Bible. What a brilliant, radical idea that nobody in the Baptist church wanted to listen to at the time. But then you go about a thousand miles south or so to a place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky, where there was a man named Barton W. Stone, who in 1801, 1802, somewhere thereabouts, holds a revival for the Presbyterian Church in Cane Ridge. And he holds this revival, and he makes sure, because he's fascinated and interested in unity among believers, he invites the local Methodist and Baptist and Presbyterian and all the other um, Episcopalian, all the other religious groups that are there in the area. He invites them all to this big revival. He preaches the meeting. It's a huge success. Everybody's enthused. Everybody's thrilled with how much popularity there was for the meeting, how excited it was to have all these religious groups come together. And Barton Stone says, you know what will be swell? Why don't we just do this all the time? Why don't we always just come together? Every Lord's Day, let's all worship as one big unified Christian body. But it was dead on arrival. Because the Methodists would say, well, we can't do that. The Baptists believe this, and we believe that. And the Baptists say, well, yeah, we're not going to do that because the Presbyterians believe this, and we don't believe that. We've got our Baptist book. And the Presbyterians have their Presbyterian book, and the Methodists have their Methodist book. And they all had one of these. They all had a Bible, but they cared more about their Baptist book, their Presbyterian book, their Methodist book, than they did the book of books. So Barton Stone was frustrated. So Barton Stone said, fine. You know what I'm going to do? If I can't get all of you guys to unify, then I'll start my own church. Which seems counterintuitive. But for a very small window of time, he decided to start his own church called the Springfield Presbytery, which promoted uh, uniformity and, and um, fellowship among all believers under the banner of the Bible and Christianity. But very, very soon after it was founded, did they realize they were walking hypocrites. They were living hypocrisy. Because they were talking about how we don't need to start new churches and have all these different churches while themselves they were part of a church that they had started. So they took the unusual step, and I've got it hanging in my office, of drafting a last will and testament to kill, to euthanize, to put to death their man-made church. And they wanted it to be a template for all that would follow. What they basically did was they drafted a declaration of religious independence. This is 1801. We are one generation removed from the drafting of Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson. Now, what you think about this? We just got through winning a war of independence. Put yourself in the mindset of the frontier American. We just kicked out the most powerful empire on the planet. From our backyard, we told them, we're on our own, you leave us be. And when they came to pick a fight, we bloodied their nose and sent them back to England. We want our freedom. We want our independence. Raw, raw America. That was the mentality. That was the zeal of freedom. And you see how that absolutely does not jibe with the idea of, so what does the Council of Georgia tell us that we need to do about our religion? What, what does the head guy in Rome tell us we have to do about our Christianity? It doesn't compute this idea that we're going to set our own path, we're going to do things our way, we don't need some king in England telling us what to do, with what does the Pope tell us we need to do. That's contradictory. So that same spirit of, of political freedom bled out into religious freedom. 
which is ironic, it's a different subject, that the whole political freedom movement itself started from this idea of religious freedom, and it's, it's come full circle back, back to religion. And so what happened was men like O'Kelly and men like Abner Jones and men like Barton Stone, they all had the same mentality of, we, we don't need to be told how to believe in God. The book that's been given to us, my Bible, my Bible will tell me, independently me, how to worship God. And if it's the same book that you have, it will tell you how to worship God. And we'll worship the same way. The same God. Under the same banner of Christianity. And that's the spirit of restoration. It was born out of the spirit of frontier America post-American Revolution. And I know you can find references in England and other places to restoration. But the whole restoration movement of the United States, that's the mentality that really sparked that flame. When Campbell, or not Campbell, when Barton Stone euthanizes Springfield Presbytery, in that last will and testament, he says things like, we will that this body be dissolved into the one body of Christ, that the church of Christ be unified without any denominational barriers or badges or anything like that, that we only adhere to the Bible only as its sufficient rule and guide and so forth. He starts talking about the little C church of Christ and so forth. And his message, as he sends it out, starts to catch fire with everybody who's fed up with denominational differences and with the Roman Catholic hierarchy. They wanted just independent Christianity through the Bible only. And Barton Stone was preaching that message, singing their song. And critics, as you can imagine, attacked. They called those people who followed that mentality new lights. You, you, you're following some new light. They called them Stoneites. Do you know what they were never called in Cambridge, Kentucky? They were never called Campbellites. You know why? Because it was three years later that Alexander Campbell left Ireland and settled in America. He and Thomas Campbell, one after the other, left Ireland and settled in America and started preaching on behalf first of the Presbyterian Church, but came to the same epiphany that all these other guys did, independent of all of them, all of them independent. The idea of the Bible only is sufficient. We should just speak where the Bible speaks and we should be silent where the Bible is silent. And in all things we should have unity and we should have liberty where there is no Bible record for it whatsoever. And by following those tenets and we just stick with the Bible, we can be unified together. We can have the manifold wisdom of God revealed to us and we can be united under the banner of the one body of Jesus Christ. That was his message. And like stone, he was mocked. And he was vilified. And he was called the founder of the Church of Christ. Alexander Campbell did not found the Church of Christ. Jesus Christ founded the Church of Christ. It bears his name. These men found what was lost. Dug it up and said, isn't this pretty? We should keep it. Listen. If, if football was to be exterminated, if some radical, evil government outlawed football and they said, we're going to do away with it and they burned all the rule books and they destroyed all the video evidence and they killed all the players so there was no football in the land and then a generation, two, ten, a thousand years pass. Football is gone. And then one day, someone picks up a book and reads it that they found somewhere lost in the bottom of a basement and it was how to play football. And they follow the book to the letter. And they do everything the book says about a field that's 50, what, 5 yards wide and 100 yards long with every 10 yards marked. And you have to get 10 yards in four tries or you turn the ball over where it is. 
and you can pass under certain conditions, and you can run within the boundaries, and you can tackle under certain conditions, and so forth. And they follow the rules to the letter, and they cr- and they they create a game, and they play the game, and everyone loves it. And they say, "What is this thing that you've invented?" Hold on, they didn't invent it; they brought it back, but they didn't create it. They recreated it. They restored it. They took which already was, and which was forgotten. And they gave it new life. The Bible has always been here. It has always been the secret sauce to saving Christianity. Oh, I say saving Christianity. It's always been the secret sauce to restoring Christianity. It's always been available. For a long time it was ignored. It was shunned. It was pushed aside. It was moved in the back in favor of writings of men. So as we bring this to a close, we look at the response. I want you to know what this book is. This book is seed that can be sown in the heart of men. And if you sow the seed of the Word of God, Luke 8, 11, in the heart of man, a willing believer of this book, if you sow this seed and you water it with obedience and faithful living, then what sprouts literally every single time is a Christian. If you sow this seed in the heart of man and you water it, what sprouts will never, ever be a Baptist. It will never be a Methodist. It will never be a Presbyterian. It will never be a Roman Catholic. It will never be a Greek Orthodox. It will never be a Mormon or a Church of Latter-day Saints adherent. It will never be a Jehovah's Witness. It will be and only be a Christian. The Bible only makes Christians only. And it makes the only Christians. Because the only Christians there are are the people who follow this book only. Everyone else is following man's way, not God's way. So as we bring it to a close, my response to you, or your response to this book should be, how do I obey? What do I need to do? And all you need to do is obey the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in this book. And if you will believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for you, and if you will reenact that death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, Romans 6, 1-4, through 4, then your sins will be washed away and God will add you, as He did those in Acts 2, He will add you to His church, not any church of man, not any Pope's church, not any scholar's church, not any student's church, not any preacher's church, but Jesus' church who died for you. And you will be a restored person. You who were with God and sinned away from God can be brought back to God. And if you are a Christian, but you've not been faithful to God, you've fallen away, you can be restored through repentance and prayer. You can come back into the fold of Jesus Christ from which you've walked away. A Christian and nothing more. Can we help you obey the gospel? If we can, please let us know how right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash 
Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, dash Martin 414, and hit subscribe for a buck, and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.